John the Baptist and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered them, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you are the Word, the Word that gives life. Father, it is you who are life, it is you who are light, you are holy, and there is no shadow of turning, there is no shadow of sin. Father, we confess that we are sinful, that we cannot approach your holiness, your majesty, your grandeur, and your glory For we are men and women of unclean lips, and we dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. We confess that we need Christ to purify us and cleanse us, to pay the penalty of our sin and to wipe the shame and guilt away that we may come into the presence of the Father. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you that in the times of um, desperation and confusion and anxiety, we can go to Christ, the sure and steady anchor who holds us fast when the waves are roaring and the wind is blowing Father, our anchor holds us fast. Father, we come to you and we pray for um, the men and women who are fighting this disease, this illness, this um, virus that uh, has affected the world in such a way. Father, I pray for your grace that works each day through medicine, through wisdom, through learning through government, through science, through medication, that you would work in this world that you have created to defeat this virus. Lord, that you would protect those who are ill. Father, we thank you that as far as we know, there is no one in our congregation who has been uh, touched by this illness. But Father, we know of those that are fighting it on the front lines in healthcare. We pray for Gil and Melissa, for Emily and Scott, for Andrea. Lord, as they battle this virus and the fear of this virus, we pray for those in our congregation and our families who are vulnerable. Father, we lift up Karen new to you right now. As she is battling cancer, 
Father, we pray that you would protect her, that you would give her victory and strength. May the medication and the treatment be effective. And most of all, in all of this, may she come to know Christ deeper in a way that without this cancer, she would never know without this storm, without this valley that she walks through. Father, I pray for those who cannot join us online, for our senior adults who are separated from us and as they battle with loneliness and anxiety and isolation. Father, I pray that you would give them courage to trust your promises, that you would comfort them by your word, and may we be deliberate to reach out to them. Father, I pray for wisdom from the Oval Office to the mayor's office, from the state government to the local government. Uh, Wisdom as we begin to consider reopening our government, give them prudence, give them wisdom. Father, may we as um, citizens of this nation and citizens of this world be um, respectful of our governments. May we not be foolish but Lord, that we would be love our neighbor well by following the wisdom that you give us. Father, but most of all, may we be quick to share the good news of great joy in Jesus Christ. As we watch this world, as the idols fall, as everything we trusted financially and medically and our health and our savings and our job and our pleasure has evaporated and crumbled down, the one thing that we have not lost is the hope of the gospel that tells us when the rain comes down and the flood comes up, the house that's built on the rock will stand. Father, I pray that we would be generous with the things that you have given us, and may we be quick to share the hope that we have, the eternal hope, the Um, unfading hope, the undefiled hope, the imperishable hope that's held in heaven for us, guarded by God. It is a relationship of knowing God and being called sons and daughters because of the work of Christ. May we preach Christ in a world that is dying. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to love and eyes to see. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come this morning, we are back in the book of Mark after a brief five-week hiatus. I never knew that the uh, five-week sermon series about the cross and the resurrection would be a virtual sermon series, and it would not be a sermon series live. But I am thankful for my family who has come and uh, faithfully encouraged me in time when I'm looking at empty pews. I'm thankful for my family who has come. And every once in a while, I get a hearty amen from my youngest son, um, from my other children, Anna and Andrew, who have helped out with the audio and visual uh, and just the logistics. And and for Denise, who has encouraged me in this time, which is difficult. And how do we shepherd? And how do we, uh, as a pastor, how how can I be faithful? Uh, This morning, I want to come before you and I want to um, be able to bring you uh, the question, uh, answer the question as we see in our first Sunday back in Mark, who do you say that I am? 
And I want to give you, as a way of intro, five significant persons in history and their, how they answered the question, who do you say that I am? The first is Gandhi, the great uh, leader in India who uh, was a champion for social reform. He says this, Jesus to me is a great world teacher among others. Another time he says, I do not accept the orthodox teaching that Jesus was or is God incarnate in the accepted sense or that he was or is the only son of God. Coming over to the history of our nation in the seven, late 1700s, we see Ben Franklin, who was always um, curious about Jesus and had a great relationship with the great revivalist George Whitfield. Franklin said this, he says, I think Jesus' system of morals and his religion as we have, as, has left us to us the best world, uh, to us the best the world has ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting and changes. And I have, with most of the present dissenters in England, some doubts to has his divinity. To Gandhi, Jesus was a great teacher. To Franklin, Jesus was a great giver of morals. Another great leader, who great in the fact that he had a profound influence, in 1922, before uh, Hitler came to power, he had this speech... Uh, that said, my feelings as a Christian point me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter who once in lowliness recognized these Jews, notice the uh, focus on the enemies of Jesus, these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them. To Hitler, Jesus was a fighter against those that Hitler hated. Another one, uh, John Lennon, in his famous, or you could say infamous, uh, newspaper article, when he says we're more popular than Jesus, he went on to say this, Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary, and he probably was right. They were a bit dense. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. That was 1966. Fourteen years later, Lennon would stand before Christ in 1980 after Assassin's Bullet took him. And then finally, we have Billy Graham, who probably in world history has preached to more people and preached the gospel. And many quotes of uh, Graham are available, but he says this, Jesus Christ opened heaven's door for us by his death on the cross. It seems like everybody and everywhere you go has an opinion on who Jesus is. But the question is, Who's right? Is Jesus a, a teacher? Is he a moral guide? Is he a fighter against people that you hate? Is Jesus the founder of a religion, of a teaching, of a way of life that has, been, that has gone wrong? Or is Jesus the key to heaven's door? Our text this morning, as we come into return to Mark chapter 8, is a turning point in the book of Mark. And it is really a hinge between the first half that shows these uh, mighty deeds and works and statements and teachings of Jesus and to finally what Jesus is about to do as he heads towards Jerusalem. And the central question of the book of Mark and really the central question of the book of, of all of the New Testament is this question that we look at this morning. 
Who is Jesus? And not just simply, who is Jesus, but who do you say that Jesus is? It is a question of eternal significance because how you answer that question will have a profound impact on today and eternity. So this morning I want to give you my big idea, the premise that I believe Mark is trying to push us towards is this. We must not follow the Jesus we want, but the Jesus we need. We must not follow the Jesus we want, but the Jesus we need. And how do we do that? By confessing Jesus as the promised King, as we'll later see, Messiah or Christ, Confessing Jesus as the promised king and trusting Jesus as the suffering servant. Trusting Jesus as the suffering servant. I pray this morning as we look at this text, we will have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to love Jesus as who he truly is. So we come this morning and beginning in verses 27 through 30, we see that we are called to confess Jesus as the promised king. Jesus is in a city called Caesarea Philippi. And for those of you with tiny screens or far away, you can see the top red box is Caesarea Philippi. It is the last outpost in Jewish areas that you could go. It's really the farthest north at this time that you could go while still remaining in Israel, the farthest distance away from Jerusalem. And the bottom box is where Jerusalem is. And at this point, Jesus is in this pagan outpost in Israel that uh, worshipped a god who was half man and half goat. Uh, they worshipped him. And it was here in this most unlikely city, the farthest you could get from Jerusalem, where the most, um, most clear, succinct, description of Jesus was uttered by Peter and the disciples. You are the Christ. And this confession of Peter has long-range implications, and it began to bring Jesus to Jerusalem, to the place where he would lay his life down to accomplish his mission of paying the ransom for our sins of many. Um, I apologize. Uh, Jesus is, is there. And along the way, as Jesus is walking and he's going to begin to heading towards Jerusalem, uh, the question comes in 27 verse B, who do people say that I am? And some reviews of Jesus, as we know, as we've been walking through the book of Mark, some were negative and some were positive, but none of them were sufficient up to this point about who Jesus really was. And to the Pharisees, Jesus was a blasphemous rebel who was leading the people astray by the power of Beelzebub. And to the crowds, Jesus was a miracle worker who was um, 
who had the power to heal diseases and to make the broken whole, and no one up to this point had ever seen anybody do anything like this or heard anybody teach anything like this. And notice in verse 28, uh, they answered and they told Jesus, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Most people looked at Jesus and recognized that he was some sort of prophet. Earlier in Mark chapter 6, it was King Herod. who um, King Herod saw Jesus' miraculous powers and his teaching and believed that it was actually John the Baptist who was risen from the dead. No one in Herod, in the crowd's estimation, could be like this but John the Baptist. But others believed, um, as much of Israel believed, that Jesus was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. The, the verse that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, Jesus was asking this question not because he wanted to know his poll numbers and his favor, uh, favorability rating before the Passover season. What he was doing is he is calling the the disciples to begin thinking about this in order to be able to prepare them for the long and winding and arduous road that would lead Jesus and his disciples and all who call themselves followers of Jesus to Jerusalem where Jesus would lay down his life as a ransom for many. But how a person answers the question, who do you say that Jesus is, has profound implications and ramifications. Because poll data and survey and analytics um, are not sufficient and cannot produce faith in the heart of a person. You can know all the right answers and you can say, I know this person and that person and this group of people and these people in the I-4 corridor and these people, this is what, how they're voting for or how they see Jesus or how they respond to Jesus, but that's not sufficient. The question now becomes, who do you say that I am? Not how do they say that I am. How do you say that I am? And then Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, in the end of verse 29, he said, You are the Christ. Jesus pronounced, or Peter pronounces that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior who would redeem Israel. And Peter boldly dis- declares Jesus as the Christ. Now, as we read through these, we need to take a quick background search to be able to understand exactly the significance, because I would imagine there may be some of you that are watching this morning who think, I thought Christ was the surname or the family name of Jesus. Actually, Jesus is his given name, and Christ is his title, not his family name. And to be able to understand that, we have to understand what these people in first century uh, thinkers were thinking about Christ at the time. The word Christ is a Greek word, and it's actually the Old Testament equivalent of the word Messiah. And when you go look and begin to read through the Old Testament, I'm reading in my Bible reading, I just finished the book of Kings, or both books of Kings, where it's king after king after king, nearly 40 different kings, that you go through the record, the historical record of who they were. 
But there was the greatest of all Israel's kings, which was a man named David, a man that was uh, after God's own heart. He was beloved by the people, though he was deeply flawed. And he was a king who received a promise from God, a promise of an eternal throne. And that promise is called the Davidic Covenants. And as you read through, you realize the Davidic covenant was that God would rise up a descendant of David who would eternally sit on the throne of David and rule all the nations with peace and truth and righteousness. This, this Davidic king was God's anointed king, God's chosen king, God's Messiah, his Christ. And tragically, as you read through the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, you see that this long-awaited anticipation for the king was never realized. Even in a great king like Solomon, it was never realized because time and time again, the kings failed the people. Even two generations after King uh, David reigned, the, the kingdom was torn. Ten king tribes to the north, two to the south. In the north, there were 19 kings. 19 out of 19 did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not once did the Bible said any of them did what was good or right in the sight of the Lord. In the southern kingdom, it was a little better, but not, so, not all that much. They had 20 kings, and only eight of those kings did what was right and good in the sight of the Lord. And as you read through the kings, and you read through the prophets, and you read through these dark nights of, and dark generations where evil and wickedness and corruption and idolatry happened amongst the people of God. We long for the king, the descendant of David, the Messiah, who would come and he would be a new and greater kingdom in the line of David. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, said, Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will raise up, <clears throat> when I will raise up for David a righteous branch off this stump, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Israel anticipated and the believed, and rightfully so, that the Messiah would be holy and free from sin. He was the anointed one. He was the true king of Israel who would destroy God's enemies by the words of his mouth. He would deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles, gather the faithful in the, from the dispersion, and rule with justice and glory. This was the people's expectation, and this was the disciples' expectations. And when Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, says, you are the Christ, Peter is saying, you are the Messiah, the long-awaited king who is to come and reign on the eternal throne of David. But Jesus' response, like we see time and time again in the book of Mark, is not the way we would expect. And I think that's a good thing. Notice Jesus' response to Peter's confession in verse 30. And Jesus strictly charged 
them to tell no one about him. That's odd, don't you think? It's like Trump or Biden telling their supporters, don't come to my rallies, don't put up yard signs or bumper stickers, and don't tell anybody that you're voting for me. Now, Jesus wasn't feigning humility. Oh, no, no, don't tell anybody. No, go on, come on. Now, Jesus was sharply forbidding them to not tell anybody or repeat what just Peter just said. And you think, why in the world is Jesus telling this? And this word uh, is a significant word. We're going to see it a couple more times in our text. This is a significant word. Notice back in Mark chapter 1, verse 25, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit saying, be silent, shut up, and come out of him. And then a couple later on in chapter 3, and, um, and um, Jesus awoke. He's in the boat with the disciples. They're all worried. Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still, be silent, shut up. Now kids, just because I quoted, I said that doesn't mean that you can. Um, and And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It's almost like Jesus is responding when a parent hears their child cuss or to say something incredibly disrespectful, and the parent points at them and looks them dead in the eyes and says, don't ever say that again. Do you understand? Jesus is sharply rebuking them. But the question is, we read, why is Jesus being so harsh? Why is Jesus putting a gag order on the disciples for Peter's confession which is actually true. Well, I believe it is because the disciples are only partially correct. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. But the disciples have an insufficient picture of who the Messiah is, of who the Christ is. And Jesus doesn't want their false expectations to be uh, disseminated to the crowds. Jesus doesn't want the inevitable worldly fame that their false expectations will uh, bring to him, and he doesn't want to be entangled by the political aspirations that the disciples would be seeking. We're going to see it later. They're walking down the road. Who's going to sit on his right? Who's going to sit on his left? The disciples, as Lenin said, they're a little thick, and that, that part is right. But Jesus... Jesus cannot allow the false expectations of him to be perpetuated because the road to Jerusalem was going to be incredibly difficult. It would include a great deal of suffering and persecution and a false understanding and the expectation of Jesus would cause his disciples to turn back. We already see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was arrested, one of the gospel writers says they scattered because they had the wrong understanding and the wrong expectations about who Jesus was. Jesus is the expected Messiah come in the most unexpected manner. 
Ocean Park, as you begin to look through and answer this question of who Jesus is, what is your picture of Jesus? What Jesus are you following? Are you following Gandhi's Jesus, who, who is a good teacher? Are you following Franklin's, um, Franklin's Jesus, who is a disseminator of good virtues? Are you following Hitler's Jesus, who is a fighter against the people that you hate? Are you following Lenin's Jesus, who is really not even worth his time? Or are you following uh, Billy Graham's Jesus, who says Jesus is the king the promised, long-awaited king who is leading us to the joy and to peace with God the Father. See, the problem is if we follow a false Jesus, a Jesus of our own creation, we will be led away from the King of Heaven who, as we sang earlier, is our only hope in life and death. If we follow a false Jesus, we will be ill-prepared to endure the difficulties and the disappointments we experience in our life, and our faith will come tumbling down like a house that's built on the sand. But if we follow the genuine Jesus, and Jesus is about to tell us next week, really part two of the sermon, you'll see what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And as it continues through this book of Mark, what it mean, who Jesus is and what it really means to be his followers. If we follow a genuine Jesus, Jesus will lead us to heaven and peace with God. And he will shelter us in the time of the fury of the storm, the dark night of soul, and when the enemy attacks, and our faith will stand firm like a house that is built on the rock. Though the rains come down and the floods come up and the winds blow, that house will stand. Ocean Park, we must not follow the Jesus that we want but we must follow the Jesus that we need. We do that We do that by confessing Jesus as the promised king that was spoken to prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament. And we also do that by trusting Jesus as the sur- suffering servant. Notice in verses 31 through 33. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribe and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. The disciples' expectations of the Messiah who would come to Jerusalem as a conquering king to liberate his people, were not wrong. It was just half the picture. It was actually the second half. Because as we read this, we often think, uh, yes, the Jews probably had a political um, picture, this and that, but the disciples would have had a very biblical understanding because they knew the Messiah, the Christ, would come. And we as Christians who um, claim the name of Christ and trust Scripture, we know that Christ will come to Jerusalem with a shout. He will bring his people to him and he will conquer his enemies. Why do we say that? Because the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, 11 through like 20, If I could read the whole thing, I would. But it says, Then I saw heavens opened, 
And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he, will, he judges and makes war. However, before Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one would come and make war on his enemies and vanquish them and bring his people to himself and bring them into the great festival, the fellowship, the feast of the Lamb, he would have to be a suffering servant. And this is the first half, the part that the disciples simply did not know and did not understand, nor did they expect. They had no categories for such uh, understanding. And this may have been really the first time that Jesus began to unpack what it meant to be the Messiah and actually do it. And it's a stunning new development in the, in the teachings of Jesus. A Messiah who suffers? No. Is that really what he said? Jesus, uh, it begins to refer to him in verse uh, I think it's 31, that Jesus says, referring to the Son of Man. And this is a well-known quote that's taken from the book of um, uh, the book of Daniel. And uh, I saw night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, this understanding of the Father, the greatness of God, and was present before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and that which shall pass away, his kingdom and the one shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man throughout the Old Testament is an exalted figure who receives power and glory and authority. And this is all things that are consistent with the disciples' picture and understanding of who the Messiah is. But Jesus goes a little bit further. And Jesus says four things that they weren't ready for, and quite frankly, as we'll see, they didn't like. That the Messiah must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed, and he must rise again. The first aspect of that is he must suffer. He begins to weave in this understanding that the Messiah must suffer, this king, this descendant of David. And that this prophecy of Isaiah 53, though many of Jews then and now believe that Isaiah 53 is not the Messiah, but the nation as a whole, Jesus begins to recalibrate their thinking and say Isaiah 53 actually is the Son of Man, the suffering servant who is to come. I am the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The suffering servant who would come to redeem Israel from her sins and all the people of God. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. A few verses later in verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and shall bear their iniquities. The Messiah would come and take the, the sins of his people upon himself, that they would never taste the bitter cup of God's wrath, that he would drink the dregs of the cup. He would suffer, but he would be rejected. 
Jesus knew that the idea and the execution of this plan of redemption that brings salvation would not be embraced by the religious leadership establishment, but they would be challenged. In fact, if we see at this point, Jesus has been thoroughly rejected. And at this point, the religious establishment is plotting to kill him and they're working to destroy him. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in his sight. God's unfolding plan of redemption. God's unfolding plan of redemption um, would not be received with open arms by the religious leaders. But in fact, it would be resisted and rejected and refused, even from his own disciples. And this came as no surprise to Jesus. He would suffer, he'd be rejected, and he'd be killed. This resistance would um, lead to persecution that was so severe that it would ultimately cost Jesus his life. But like his suffering and his rejection, this was the plan of God before the foundations of the earth to redeem a people unto himself. Jesus would be the Lamb of God who would die on behalf of his people. He would be the ultimate Passover Lamb that the Lamb would die and the people by faith would claim his blood and the, um, the wrath of God would pass over. Jesus would lay down his life to redeem his people from their sin. He would suffer, he would be rejected, he would die and then ultimately he would rise again victorious. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would not simply be a tragic hero who died for a cause or for his people, but he would be a triumphant people, who, a triumphant leader who dies for his people and rises victorious over sin and death. Jesus plainly taught this, that they would suffer and be rejected, that he would be killed and rise again. And this is mind-blowing to the disciples. They have no answer, and I can imagine as they're sitting on this this hillside in Caesarea, they have, have no idea. Jaws are dropping open, and they're like, what is he talking about? Notice verse 32. And Peter took Jesus aside. Come here. Come here, Jesus. Big, burly fisherman Peter puts his arm around Jesus and says, hey, let me, let me talk to you over here. And he began to rebuke him. I can see the scene. Peter, self-confident and abashed, walks up to Jesus while he is alone, and he breaks the news to Jesus. Um, Jesus, the fellows and I were talking about that stuff that you were talking last night about, the fire, the suffering, the rejection, that, that death stuff. Don't talk about that anymore. That's pretty far out there. People will think that you've lost your mind. The crowds, they're not going to like that. Trust me, people don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Don't talk about that stuff anymore. Peter is rebuking Jesus. 
Remember earlier, it says the same word, Jesus strictly charged them. Now that same Greek word is coming back and it says, Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter strictly charged Jesus. Don't talk about that anymore. That's out there. That's not good. Jesus's view of the Messiah was not what Peter wanted to hear. So he rebuked Jesus. Stop it. You could replace this by uh, uh, Peter strictly forbid Jesus to not speak of such things, or Peter told Jesus, you just need to to be quiet. The mind of the disciples were set on human ideas rather than divine truth, the things of heaven. And therefore, they couldn't accept the fact that Jesus must be a suffering servant before he could be a royal Messiah, a royal king, the anointed king, the anointed Christ. J.C. Ryle put it this way uh, some over 120 years ago. Simon Peter thought he knew what was right and fitting for his master himself and actually undertook to show the Messiah a more excellent way. And last but not least, Simon Peter did what, what, what with the best intentions. He meant well. His motives were pure, but zeal and earnestness are no excuse for error. A man may mean well and yet fall into tremendous mistakes. Good intentions, sincere intentions, have led many into eternal damnation because they have rebuked Jesus. But notice the grace of God and the grace of Jesus. In verse 33, but turning and seeing the disciples. I know why you're here, Peter, because they've put you up to this. Seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Sometimes when the, God, the grace of God comes, it is soft and it is tender. And it comforts us. Sometimes it is blunt and straight to the point, And it comes with the heavy lumber. Peter's correction of Jesus was more than the work of Satan. Um, Jesus not only had to contend with the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were blatantly opposing him, trying to kill him, but also the blind enthusiasm of his supporters and their misguided, ignorant expectations were undercutting his work. Satan works in many ways and on many fronts and wears many disguises, and he was speaking through the misguided, ignorant words of Peter, and Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter's problem was he was not uh, only seeing what he, Peter's problem was he was only seeing what he wanted to see. Peter wasn't willing to submit to Jesus. He was making Jesus submit to him. Peter wanted a Messiah to serve his prejudices, to support his passions, to gratify his desires. Now, Ocean Park, before you look down on Peter, Remember, this question is not just for the disciples and Peters. Who do you say that I am? This question is the fundamental question that all must answer. 
How do you answer? And often our view of Jesus is the same as Peter's faulty, misguided view. Jesus becomes the champion for our causes. Jesus becomes the justification for our prejudice, like Hitler. Jesus becomes the enabler of our bigotry. Jesus is not, let me tell you, Ocean Park, he is not a commodity to, re- to get your self-gratification or the means to your desired end. Jesus is God's chosen king who we are called to submit to. And Jesus is his way, is a way of self-sacrifice that we must embrace. And next week, as we continue to read through this inner exchange between Jesus and now the crowds and the disciples, we will see the way of the, of the king, the way of the Messiah. To do anything else than submit to the way of God in Christ is to be following the misguided, devious destruction of Satan. Ocean Park, we often need the rebuke of Jesus. To be rebuked by Jesus, though, let me warn you, is not to be rejected by Jesus. That's good news. Because without the gracious rebuke of Jesus, we would follow a false Jesus from, uh, away from our only hope in life and death. We would remain slaves to our ignorance and we would be deluded by our uh, visions of grandeur and by our own pride. The rebuke of Jesus to Peter and the disciples and to all who follow Jesus is a shining example of God's amazing grace. God's amazing grace who challenges our self-deception and leads us to repentance away from our sin, which is ignorant and misguided. For without the rebuke of Jesus, we will follow Satan. And next week, we will see four demands of Jesus that he calls his disciples to follow. But today, we must remember, Ocean Park, that we must not follow the Jesus that we want, but the Jesus we need. We do that by confessing Jesus as the promised king and trusting Jesus as the suffering servant. Who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the Christ the long-awaited king who laid down his life to atone from our sin and to, take our, to remove our sin and guilt and remove it as far as the east is from the west. So this morning I asked you in closing, Ocean Park, who do you say that Jesus is? Last week, 2.4 billion self-professed Christians celebrated the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There are a few outliers, the Eastern Orthodox, who are actually celebrating Easter today. They don't do daylight savings, so they're a week behind us. 2.4 billion people call themselves followers of Jesus. There is a remaining nearly 5 billion people remaining that believe that Jesus is only a teacher. He's only a prophet. He's a liar. He's a legend. And billions upon billions have never heard the name of Jesus. But the question that you must answer today as you read through the Gospel of Mark is who do you say that Jesus is? It is by far 
the most important question that you will answer, ever answer. Jesus does not want to know um, what your pastor thinks, what your mom and dad think, what your professor thinks about Jesus, what your president thinks about Jesus, what your favorite uh, actor or actress, your favorite musician says about Jesus. He doesn't want you to answer what your spouse says about Jesus, what your favorite podcast says about Jesus, or what the Twitterverse says about Jesus. The question that you must answer is, who do you say that Jesus is? And how does that answer affect your life today and for eternity? Ocean Park, who do you say that Jesus is? A heart of faith expresses in public confession the name of Jesus. That answer cannot be, faith cannot be given by proxy. It must come from the individual is you are the Christ. And everyone must answer for themselves. But let me tell you this. As many joined us last week to celebrate Easter, those same people are nowhere to be found. And they won't be back till Christmas or Easter or when they have problems, when they lose their job, when they get sick. They have a false Jesus. And many of you watching may have a false Jesus. A Jesus that is shaped not by the God of Scripture and who God says He is, but is shaped by political ambition, by personal bigotry, by selfish ambitions, by ignorant desires, by moral superiority, by worldview corroboration. Not the Christ of the Bible. The anointed king who will sit in eternally, who laid his life down to redeem us from our sin, and who reigns, and who will come to vanquish sin and bring his people to himself. Until that day, the only answer that is sufficient is to confess Jesus as the promised king, and to trust Jesus as the suffering servant who laid his life down to take the sin and the judgment that you deserve. This promised king, this suffering servant, demands, has, puts demands on our life and says, follow me. As we will see, Jesus says, this is how you will follow me, how you will be my disciple. All who say that I am the Christ, who have a biblical understanding of who Jesus is and have a proper understanding of why Jesus came, this is how they will lead their life. And we will see many people will read this and say, it's just not worth it. But I pray for you, Ocean Park, friends, family members, people joining us who have stumbled across our page. The question you must answer is who Jesus is. And when you do, you must not follow the Jesus you want. But you must follow the Jesus you need. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you that you are God in the flesh. Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you sent us Christ, who dwelt among us, who lived uh, perfect righteousness, who taught us of the heaven and taught us what the kingdom of God is, but do not just give us teaching, 
but laid his life down as the Lamb of God without sin, who loved the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and loved his neighbor as himself. As we know, we fall desperately short time and time again. He took the punishment on the cross so that we would not be condemned before God. And he, like the scapegoat that died in the wilderness with the sin of the people upon him, Jesus died outside the gates of Jerusalem so that the people of God who trust him by faith alone can dwell in the city of Zion at the table with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all who trust. Father, I pray for those listening today who don't know Jesus, that they will say, I am a sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Have mercy on me, O Lord. I am yours. Save me. And that they would follow Christ in faith and baptism be my joy to tell them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I pray for the others who have trusted Jesus that day by day they would um, repent of their sin, of their ignorance, of their misguided zeal, and follow Jesus as a disciple and say, you are my only hope in life and death. I belong to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.